So this morning, we're, we're starting our new series called Brave, and this morning particularly, I have the privilege of unpacking a few thoughts for you, and it's around the character of David and his life, and just some lessons that we might glean from David's uh, steps and missteps, if you will. Uh, the principle of correction is how God rescues people when they go astray. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and kindness. Thank you that it's your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Thank you that your word is, is, is for our good, for our correction, our instruction, for building us up, for making us better, for helping us grow in our knowledge of who you are and your plans for our life. Help us this morning. Help us get our hearts and our heads around the truths that you want for us individually and us corporately as a church family. In Jesus' name, anybody in the house said, Amen. When I think about the word correction, for some reason my head goes to like ships. I don't know why they just do. And, and, uh, and, and I thought about this old tale that I read the other day about a battleship that was returning from its training maneuvers at sea. It encountered heavy weather on its way home and the visibility was made poor by the thick fog that smothered the seas. So the captain remained on the bridge keeping his eye on all the activities around us and shortly after dark the lookout on the wing reported Light bearing on the starboard bow, sir. Is it steady or moving astern? The captain called out. The lookout replied, steady, captain, which, mean, which meant they were on a, on a dangerous collision course. The captain then called to the signalman, signal that ship, we are on a collision course. Advise you change course 20 degrees. Back came the signal, advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. The captain said, send the message, I'm a captain, change course 20 degrees. I'm a seaman, second class, came the reply. You, sir, had better change course 20 degrees. By that time, the captain was furious. He spat out, send the message, I'm a battleship, change course 20 degrees. Back came the flashing light, I am a lighthouse. <laughs> Guess who corrected course? So the goal of God-centered correction is to keep us, you and I, from shipwrecking our lives and the lives of those around us. That's the goal of correction. In his book, How God Makes Man, Patrick Morley uh, outlines the principle of correction, and I wanted us to kind of look at that. And I want to look at it in the context of, the ki of King David, one of the most celebrated men in Scripture. And, and David is known for two things if you've ever read the story or followed the story of the life of David in Scripture, two things come to mind, at least for me, when I think about David. The one, the first thing is found in, in 1 Samuel 17, where David as a teenager stood up to and struck down the Philistine giant Goliath, the war hero of the Philistines. That's just amazing. It's an amazing story. That's probably the more popular one. The second event that King David is known for is not as glorious as when he slayed Goliath. In fact, it was scandalous and recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Keep in mind, we're talking about the principle of correction, how God rescues us when we go astray. 2 Samuel, you, you see it on the screen for you. In the spring of the time when kings go off to war, that's an interesting thought. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole, ar the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged R Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know why he, he remained in Jerusalem when, when it's time for kings to be out of war, but apparently something caught his attention. Maybe he wanted to catch up on the NBA finals 
because LeBron and them were struggling, or perhaps he wanted to see, you know, the, 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 the Pharaoh, American Pharaoh, win the Triple Crown, never done before in 37 years, and finally won it. I don't know what kept him off the battlefield, but he wanted to stay home. He's just chilling, right? Kings is supposed to be at war, David's not. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Or you could say one evening, David was kind of playing around on Facebook. He's kind of trolling a little bit and saw something. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. I want, I want to emphasize that. She is the daughter of somebody and the wife of somebody. Not just anybody, but the wife of one of his, one of his mighty men, Uriah, that's out of battle. But that didn't stop David. Because he sent a messenger to, her to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Not exactly what he, David wanted to hear from this lady. He thought they would you know, have a little, little, you know, little affair on the side and no big deal. And all of a sudden he gets the three words that, that men don't want to hear from women that are not their wives. I'm pregnant. And so in the back of his mind, David's trying to figure out, what am I going to do about this? And so he kind of conjures, he comes up with this, this plan to kind of cover over his sin, and it, it just, it goes from bad to worse. And let's pick that up. Then David sent messengers to get her. Oh, I'm sorry. So, so David sent the word to Joab, the leader of the Israelites' army. He says, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how... how how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going. And so he's kind of having small talk with, with one of his key leaders. He says, so how are things going on on the war front? And in the back of his mind, he's trying to figure out, how am I going to make this guy, how am I going to fix this? How am I going to cover this? And apparently David had kind of cooked up a plan in his mind that he's going to have Uriah go home and sleep with his wife so he can, he can impregnate her. And, and then nobody know any better, right? She'd be pregnant and that's an easy, that's an easy solution. So he, so he, so he sends him home. He said, Uriah, you've, you've, had a, you know, you've been out serving us. You've been at war. It's time to rest. Just go and you know, spend, some, spend an evening with your wife. And in fact, I'll give you a gift to, to kind of help you out with the evening. Maybe some wine or some champagne or something to help you out. And so he goes, he, instead of going home, he sleeps. The Bible talks about this. Is, he says, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and didn't go down to his house. Uriah was a man of integrity and honor. He said, I can't do this. I can't do this, king. The king hears about him and his, his plan, his plot is kind of foiled a little bit because Uriah is not playing along. He says, come on, Uriah, man. You got to get a little something, something here. Come on, man. You gotta just, you, you've been hard at work. I'm just trying to help you out, bro. I'm a good king. And Uriah said, no, sir. Can't do that. Men are fighting. I'm worried about the men. Not going to do it. Well, why don't you stay a little later? Well, let's just think about that. So he gets him drunk that night, and, he, and still it doesn't transpire. Nothing happens. Uriah is a man of honor. And so what, what King David now cooks up, since he can't get Uriah to agree with his, with his plan, is he, he, he puts a letter in Uriah's hand. He said, give this to the, cat, to the leader of the armies, and uh, that's, that's just my letter from, from me to Joab. Well, in the letter... David lays out the plan of how he's going to handle, how he's going to cover over this sin of his. He tells Joab, the leader of the armies, he said, hey, I want you to 
send Uriah out to the front. That's the, hot, the hottest spot in the battle. And then I want you to just kind of fade back and let the boy get killed. That's what he says in his letter. So he's setting this all up, and unfortunately for Uriah, he becomes a casualty in David's cooked up sin. He dies. The word gets back that Uriah is dead, and then David, out of his benevolence, takes in his wife, Bathsheba, to become one of his wives. And David thinks, oh, it's good now. Nobody will know any better. Nobody, eh, people know what's going on. And if they don't know what's going on, God knows what's going on. And so he thinks it's good. We're good. We're good. The problem with David is he had a circle of friends, and one of them included a guy named Nathan. And so Nathan gets, a, get, gets his phone call from God. He said, hey, Nathan, your boy's in trouble. I got something for you. So let's pick that story up in 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. I want to pause there just for a second. It's the Lord that sent Nathan to David. Nathan didn't just kind of come up with this good idea, but God reveals to Nathan and says, hey, you need to speak to this boy. He's tripping. He's come off the rails. And it's not right. God loved David so much that he spoke to another guy that was in David's circle and said, hey, you need to go speak to him. He needs to come back into his right mind. And so Nathan goes to David. And I, I, I want to talk about that a little bit more, but you can imagine if you're Nathan, you're like the prophet, right? And David has just kind of murdered a guy. You know, he's like the king. And if I confront him, things may not go so well for me. I might, you know, this might be it. So there's a little risk involved. But Nathan presses in. When he came to him, he said, he's talking to David. Nathan said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. Raised it, grew it up with him and, and his children that shared his food, drank it with his cup, even slept in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. He's a family pet. You know, this, it's, it's part of the family. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep from the, all the herds that he had. He refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the, the lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it. Now, let me translate that for you and Simone. Barbecue. Okay, so he had a barbecue and, and for the one who had come to him. So he, he has this party. And, he, and so David just kind of, are you kidding me right now? All of a sudden, this guy that just kind of violated another man's wife and and, and, and murdered his, the husband, grew a conscience. He's like, what? Are you kidding me right It says, David burned with anger against the man and said, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you're the man. You are that guy. Now, you can imagine what's going on in David's mind. He's like, he's thinking he's got it all figured out. He's got it all co covered. And all of a sudden, bam, the flashlight is on. Hey, Nathan, hey, big fella, check it out. You're that guy. You're it. Today, we'd call that intervention, right? And, and, the, and the, here's, here's the beauty of that, though. God loved David so much. 
God loved David so much that he, he, he stepped into David's path of destruction. He said, hey, hey, that's not the way to go. That's not right. You need to get this straight. You are outside of your mind right now. You, get, you got wrong thinking going on. You have wrong living going on. God loves David so much. He wants to restore because that's what correction does. He's trying to restore him back into right relationship. That's what he does in our lives when we go off the rails. He steps into the middle of our lives. He says, hey, Raj, check yourself, big fella. You're tripping. God loved David so much. God loves you and I so much. He steps into our story and intervenes before we hurt ourselves and hurt others. And Nathan just continues. I mean, he just hammers him. He said, man, are you, Dave, what were you thinking? Are you kidding me right now? And he goes on and on. And thankfully for David, he confesses to Nathan. He says, I've sinned against the Lord. Hebrews 12 5 says this about discipline. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So Nathan is just going for the jugular. He's, I mean, God is kind of all up in, this, in David's business and David says, yes, sir, I'm, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. I need forgiveness. And so God forgives David Unfortunately for David and unfortunately for us, whenever we sin, sin is never, lo never localized. There's collateral damage that is included whenever we sin. Somebody innocent gets hurt. Somebody who was not even involved in your stuff gets damaged, gets in some cases destroyed. So I give David credit for responding with a repentant heart, but unfortunately for him, the consequences of his sin damaged and devastates. Think about the emotional, the physical, and the spiritual carnage caused by our sin, lust, adultery, anger, jealousy, greed, theft, murder, addiction, you name it. You insert yours in there, I'll insert mine. But it's all devastating. And although David was forgiven of his sins against God and Bathsheba and Uriah, he was forgiven the collateral damage was catastrophic for David's own family. Four sons were killed. Two of them led an uh, insurrection, conspired against their own dad. One of them raped his own sister. One night of fleeting pleasure set into motion a chain reaction that resulted in devastating results. Unfathomable for David. Our sin hurts us and others. That's just, that's just, the, it is, it's just the truth. Our sin hurts us. Our sin hurts others. The interesting thing is you read this, you know, God doesn't airbrush stuff. We do. We, do, we try to cover our stuff up. But when you read scripture, I mean, David is like one of the, he's, he's one of the guys in scripture. I mean, he's a hero. And, and, the, and the Bible even says, uh, that, that David was a man who's, who's wholly devoted to God in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4. But there's a huge asterisk, there's a huge blemish on his record right next to his name. I, li I like what my good friend John Priest said when we were talking about King David and, and this sermon. We were just kind of chatting about it the other day. That even when the asterisks in, in his life, even with the blemishes in David's life, he was a man with a heart for God because, first of all, David knew where to go 
Not only did he know where to go, because it's one thing to come to your senses and go, man, I'm messed up. I need to get right with God. And it's one thing to know that and, and have a mental understanding and an emotional embracing and all of that with that. It's one thing to do that. It's another thing to go there, actually go there. David knew where he had to go, and he was also willing to go there. But the truth is, like David, we all have blemishes on our record. That's the truth. We all have asterisks. I think about Barry Bonds, all-time San Francisco Giants, all-time Major League home run king. But he may never get to the Hall of Fame because he has a steroid asterisk next to his name. And then there's Tom Brady, who I will not give too much time because I don't like Tom. Sorry about that. Deflategate, right? What's up with that, Tom? Asterisk. We could talk about politicians, movie stars, businessmen and women, all with blemishes by their name, all with asterisks next to their name. But here's the truth. He was without sin, cast the first stone. We all have blemishes. And despite that, despite all of that, despite what David has found himself into, I mean, this is just a messed up situation. You got to think about it. Man, the dude just, that is not the same guy we see in 1 Samuel chapter 17, running to the battle line, going after the, the giant. Man, that's, this is a different day. I don't know this David. Where did he come from? What crawled up into his brain? What stupid pill did he take that morning? And if you're honest, and if we're honest, we find ourselves sometimes down a path. We're like, man, well, how did I get here? What is going on? Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you can ever, ever, ever afford to pay. That's just the way it is. How in the world did I get here? I don't know, but you better get back. And the God of heaven reaches down from heaven and draws us back to himself. That's just the way he is. That's his heart. He's about redemption. He's about restoring his creation. And I believe that the Holy Spirit inspired David to write the Psalms, the 51st Psalms. It's a picture of his response to his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, his sin against God. Gives us three thoughts to think about this morning when it comes to correction and how God rescues us when we go astray. The first thought is in Psalms 51, verse 1 to 5. Look inward. Look inward. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. You can, can you feel the heart of David? For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David is looking deep in his heart. He's taking, he's taking inventory of, of his moral infrastructure, his spiritual condition. And it's God that does that to us. He pulls the veil back and he shows us who we are. And man, it's not pretty sometimes. Actually, sometimes it's just downright embarrassing and ugly. And yet, even in the middle of that, he has hope. I, I don't get it. When we compare ourselves to ourselves with ourselves, we're fine. Not a very good standard. When we compare ourselves to the holiness and the grace of God, man, we fall short. It's hard to read the label of the jar that you're in. 
You know what I mean by that? Like, everybody sees you a particular way, but you don't have, you don't get it. You don't realize that, man, you're toxic and that your actions are just, you're a train wreck. People around you are being affected by it. Some are walking on eggshells around you because they can't say anything to you. You're just sensitive, hypersensitive. Or perhaps there's somebody in your life that's like, life is just, it's a wreck and you're just like walking around. Sometimes we just rather ignore it. And sometimes God speaks to our heart like he did Nathan. The value of having people who have a heart for God and a heart for you that are willing to risk it sometimes to bring a word that'll be tough at first, but in the long run bring restoration and wholeness. That's where Nathan comes in. It's a great picture of of the types of relationships that we should have in our lives. Those who are willing to, to walk with us. Those who are willing to say the hard stuff to us. I've, had some, I've got some good friends in my life that will just say, hey, Rod, you're, that's, that's bad thinking right there, bro. You need to knock that off. Anybody in your life like that? Anybody that you've given permission to speak to you that way? Well, David had Nathan. Nathan was willing to risk his life. He's not a tailbearer. He's not, a, he's not in looking for the juicy information. That's not what Nathan was there about. He's bringing the heart of God to the situation and say, hey, bro, let's fix this. I'm willing to walk with you on this one. The value of being in a relationship with other God followers, willing to speak the truth in love, risking it for the benefit of others. Here's what 1 John 1.8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we would deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. James reminds us that therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So we confess to God for forgiveness and we confess to our brothers and sisters for healing. Second thought. It's not only good and healthy to be in a place where you're looking inward and taking inventory, but now you can't stay there. David knew that you can't stay there. You have to look upward. Psalms 51 verse 6, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast, a loyal, a persevering, a right spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore. Everybody say restore. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David witnessed the downfall of King Saul. He saw how God moved his presence away from Saul and man, everything just went south. David didn't want any part of that. Saul's sin caused God to remove his presence and power from Saul's life. David's sin separated him from God. On the outside, they, they both may have looked just fine, looked apart. You ever been in a situation like that where inside you know you're wrong, you know you did wrong, but on the outside you just have this facade. You just kind of, it's a shell. It's a, there's form there, but there's no power. 2 Timothy 3 says, Holding to a form of godliness, 
although they have denied its power. Ever been in that place where people, where you know you're a follower of God, maybe some people call you a God follower, but inside you know there's some things that just haven't been right. You made some decisions that were wrong decisions. It's taking you down a particular path. And you're thinking, man, don't just hold on to the form. Get some of that power. I grew up in Long Beach, California, and one of the tourist attractions that we have is the Queen Mary. Uh, we'd visit the Queen Mary from time to time. We're too poor to go on to the Queen Mary, so we just kind of played in the parking lot and checked it out from a distance. So, and so all my life, the Queen Mary is moored in Long Beach, California, but in, on May 27, 1936, the Queen Mary departed from Southampton, England, embarking on her maiden voyage. The Queen Mary had set a new benchmark in transatlantic travel, which the rich and famous considered as the only civilized way to travel. She quickly seized the hearts and imaginations of the public on both sides of the Atlantic, representing the spirit of an era known for its elegance, class, and style. For three years after her maiden voyage, the Queen Mary was the grandest ocean liner in the world, carrying Hollywood celebrities like Bob Hope and Clark Gable, royalty like, Duke and, like the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, and dignitaries like Winston Churchill. During this time, she even set a new speed record, which she held for 14 years. As World War II started, the Queen Mary was transformed into a troop ship. She was painted a, a camouflage gray color and stripped of her luxurious amenities. Dubbed the Great Ghost because of her stealth and stark color, the Queen Mary was the largest and fastest troop ship to sail, capable of transporting as many as 16,000 troops at 30 knots. After World War II, the Queen Mary returned to her original glory. On October 31st, 1967, the Queen Mary departed on her final cruise, arriving in Long Beach, California, on December 9th, 1967. The Queen Mary is now a floating hotel, attraction, an event, and wedding venue, home to three world-class restaurants and an icon in Southern California. Now, the Queen Mary may be, was designed with a, with a very unique and particular purpose. She was an ocean liner. She was made to travel the open seas. If, he, if she could speak, she'd probably say something like, I don't want to be a tourist attraction. I don't want to be a hotel or even a five-star restaurant. I'm an ocean liner. I've conquered the Atlantic. I've transported heads of state, leaders of nations, soldiers, and prisoners of war. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore to me the purposes and plans for which I was designed and created. Form, no power. Restore, David said, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. How many of us have allowed the blemishes in our lives keep us moored in the harbor of fear, regret, and condemnation? David looked upward to the one who designed him, the one who knew him inside and out, the one who forgave him. God, my sin was destructive, inexcusable, but now, Lord, do in me what I can't do for myself. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Philippians 1, verse 6 says, And I am certain, this is hope for us, church, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until, until it is finally finished. God is going to complete the good work he began in you and I, even with our blemishes. Is it ugly? Yes, absolutely. Is it a sin? Yes. But the God that loves us reaches us, reaches down, corrects our course, 
Cause us to look inward, upward, and then finally look outward. Psalms chapter 51 verse 13 says this, Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in the sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise me. Here we see clearly that God wasn't done with David yet. God even wanted David to teach other people God's ways. That's a great redemptive purpose of God's correction. He not only restores us, he uses our testimony and even our sin-riddled past to encourage others and give hope. If you'd have known me as a teenager or a college student, you would not have been able to imagine my ever being a pastor. I'm not proud of the fact that my pride, arrogance, and selfishness have hurt others. There were times when Pastor Stan, I remember when I was still working in the private sector, I happened to be serving on the elder board, and from time to time, Pastor Stan would say, it'd be really great to have you on the pastoral team. I was like, eh, not so much. And one of the hurdles for me was that at Oregon State, I was just a mess. I hurt a lot of people, hurt myself. I mean, on the outside, you know, athlete, blah, 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 all this stuff, inside, and I just a train wreck, just didn't even know who I was, just full of myself, just, just a train wreck. And one of the thoughts that came to my mind is, man, if I stand up there, I was at Sackett Hall, there might be other Sackett Hall people up in here. They're like, really? And so I was like, I would, that, that was just kind of a, for me, it was just difficult to, I know God forgives, God restores, but the reality is the, the residue of my sin still kind of chased after me. But I am thankful that the kindness and the mercy of God caused me to look inward and acknowledge how messed up I was. That same God is the one I looked upward to because he alone is the only one. This happened in the other service, too. This is Pastor Stan's territory. He's the one that cries in, on the team. Man, must be some crying things happening up in here. It's this area right here. This is a crying area right here, sweetheart. Shoot. He alone is the only one who could fix my broken life. And today he encouraged me to look outward to reach and love those who are in a place similar to where I was not too long ago. Philippians 3 tells us, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. Forget what's behind. Forget, yes, messed up. Yes, get it right. But strain. Lean into the purposes that God has for us. Church, too many people that are hurting for us not to Lean into God's call on our lives. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win 
This is not your kid's soccer game. We keep score, and we're going to win. By the grace of God, win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians encourages us that if anyone is in Christ, anyone, all in the house included, anyone, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Another version of the scripture say, he's a new creature, never existed before. All that stuff, that you, all the blemishes, gone. The old is gone and the new is here. The blemishes, the asterisks in King David's story reminds us, you and I, of a loving, compassionate Father God who values who values us and goes to great lengths to correct, restore, and make us whole even when we go astray. 